Uh, continuing our conversation about what's happening uh, in the Mideast, let's talk to Dan Sr., who is the author of the upcoming book, The Genius of Israel, which goes on sale actually uh, this week. Dan, thank you for coming back on with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I, uh, I appreciate it. So uh, it's interesting, this, this war, this situation, uh, almost daily takes on different twists and turns. Um, Israel has basically said, we understand why uh, people want us to have a ceasefire. There's not going to be any ceasefire without at least releasing all the hostages. And even then, you know, we don't know what we're going to listen to. Is, is there a point at which shedding public support starts to actually become a legitimate problem for Israel? Look, I think there are um, three, probably three or four pressure points on Israel. One pressure point up to now was the Israeli urgency, Israelis, Israeli public's urgency to do something to respond. The second pressure point is the Biden administration, which has had concerns about how Israel is going about this war. The third pressure point is those families of hostages and uh, and them wanting knowing that once Israel goes in on the ground, it makes it harder and harder for Israel to get back the hostages. Uh, and fourth, the international community's reaction. I think the international community's reaction is, from Israel's perspective, the least important. Israel believes no matter what they do here, they are not going to get the international community off its back. If you look at that UN vote, that UN General Assembly vote a, a couple weeks ago that called for a cross, uh, called for a ceasefire. Basically, it was the U.S. and Israel that voted against it and a handful of other countries. The rest of the world called for a ceasefire without even mentioning the word Hamas. It was like Hamas didn't even exist. There was a ceasefire with Hamas. There was a ceasefire in Gaza. It was on October 7th. On October 7th, on October 6th, on October 7th, Hamas went to war against Israel in, in almost a genocidal way. Israel has to make sure that never happens again. So their attitude is if the world is reacting negatively to how we are responding, that they so don't get it. They so don't get what we're dealing with. And there's no point in trying to try to mollify the international community. We just have to make sure Hamas can never try to rape and burn and genocidally attack us again. Yeah. But what price do they pay down the pike? I understand when you're saying um, they don't they have to not care, essentially, you know, the, the, and their approach is that they, they can't because they have a higher goal. But when when this moves to the next phase or when this is over or whatever, is there permanent damage done? Are there alliances that are broken? I, I know, for for example, the Saudi Arabia talks that they were having. Are they just a victim of this? Is that you know, they have to just accept that, uh, you know, that, that they're out the window for now? And what are the other repercussions? No, I actually think it's the opposite. I think Saudi Arabia, part of what Saudi Arabia is was attracted to, in, 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 keep in mind, the Saudis were not drawn to Israel because they're lovers of Zion. And they are, you know, they wake up every day wanting to celebrate and honor the Jewish state. The Saudis were drawn to Israel, much like the Emiratis were and the Bahrainis were, who signed the Abraham Accords, because they believe Israel was strong. Israel was strong militarily. Israel was strong economically. Israel was strong technologically, as we wrote in our last book. Israel's society was strong, an incredible sense of solidarity, which we write about in our new book. Israel is a strong country. It's a regional superpower. And the Saudis wanted to partner with that strength. On October 7th, the risk is that Israel looked weak economically. I'm sorry, weak militarily. And so the Saudi, what, what, what Israel needs to demonstrate to the Saudis is don't worry, 
we still got it. We know publicly you have to criticize us, but privately the Saudis want to get rid of Hamas as much as anybody. So because they think Hamas is a is a sister organization to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a threat to the Saudi Saudi monarchy. So the most important is, thing Israel can do, even if it creates some near-term noise and, and friction, the most important thing Israel can do is win. Demonstrate strength. Win, and that'll bring the Saudis back to the table. In fact, the Saudis are already talking about resuming normalization. Wow. The... Um... The long range, uh, uh, you know, what comes next thing? You saw Blinken meeting with the uh, PLA head, uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. Um, is that a realistic consideration if they should, you know, basically level Gaza, get rid of Hamas? Um, would, would the PLA take that over? And is that, is that any better in the long run? Yeah, so the so the so the um, Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, which is led by, as you said, Mahmoud Abbas, is a more secular, uh, quote unquote, more moderate version. Certainly, they don't they don't appear to to want to experiment with with genocidal attacks against Israel. Uh, they're not perfect. They have many problems, and obviously, the leader of, of the Palestinian Authority has said some pretty toxic things about Israel. But again, not clear that they've ever got serious about trying to wage the kind of war against Israel that Hamas has. And they used to be in charge of Gaza uh, prior to 2007. They were in charge of Gaza. Then there was a violent coup against the Palestinian Authority by Hamas that drove the Palestinian Authority out. I think the Palestinian Authority resuming control of Gaza is one idea. I think there'll be others out there. Um, but the, but the, one I, the one proposal that will be unacceptable is any remnant of Hamas still being in charge in Gaza. Yeah. Any thoughts on, on what's going on in the U.S.? Uh, in terms of the support, you saw that rally in uh, in, in Washington over the weekend. Uh, it is it is certainly on TikTok. Apparently, you know, it's a it's a overwhelming majority of young people are on the side of what they think is a quote unquote Palestinian side, as if as if Israel's at war with the Palestinians. Uh, but it is it is definitely becoming vogue and 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 more so by the day for American, particularly American youth, to see Israel as, you know, the bad guys in this whole thing, and even with very minimal information. And a lot of people don't want any more information. You know, they just want to pick the oppressor and the oppressed, and, and that's it. Why is that the way it is? And what, is, what price in the long run will that pay and Israel pay for in its greatest ally, which is the United States? I think the problem is even bigger than you're, you're stating, although you're stating a very big problem. The problem is we're seeing the resurgence of the oldest hatred, which is anti-Semitism. And what is happening is two things. One, Israel was the victim on October 7th. It wasn't the victimizer. And it was the victim in the most gruesome and barbaric ways one could possibly imagine from, from, raping, live raping, rape torturing, and broadcasting it on social media, to kidnapping children. What, why, why, do, why do we think that people are, this new thing now, people are tearing down the posters of the kidnapped children? You see that all these pro protests right. where there are posters of the kidnapped children, they tear them down? They tear them down because it's cognitive dissonance. It's something I've talked about in my podcast with some experts in anti-Semitism. It's cognitive dissonance. People, can, if, you, if you demonize Israel as being the powerful, then you can't have posters of, of Israeli children who are being held hostage because those children are powerless. 
And if Israel was so powerful, it wouldn't have its own children having been taken hostage into right. underground tunnels in Gaza. So, so they have to tear down the pictures. They have to fit this structure that Israel is the all-powerful. The reality is on Israel's southern border, it had Hamas that had a genocidal commitment to Israel. And Israel's northern border, it had Hezbollah, which was, has a genocidal commitment to Israel, all backed by Iran, which is also in Israel's region. That's the re reality of Israel's world. So you can call Israel powerful all you want, but Israel is the victim here. And what the thing about anti-Semitism, if you go back the last couple thousand years, what is always consistent about it is, is Jews are always to blame, and the Jews are always held to a different standard than anyone else. So Israel's only responding to the threats it faces like any other country would, like America did in 2016 when it went and took out ISIS in Mosul. Same thing. It leveled Mosul. It did what it had to do to respond to the threat of beheadings and slaughtering of innocents. Israel's doing the same thing, except held to a different standard than any other country. That is the, sadly, the oldest form of discrimination. Now, can I tell you a piece of good news in the midst of all this? Sure, please. The piece of good news is, and, and I really, I think this is important because everything we're talking about here is extremely dark. Israeli society right now is flourishing despite this setback, right? It was horrible. It's brutal. Israel will be dealing with a national trauma for a long time. But what you are seeing are Israelis coming together from all walks of life, from religious to secular, from Jews from Northern Africa to Jews from Eastern Europe and the United States and Australia who live in Israel. You're seeing, you know, secular, wealthy tech CEOs in Tel Aviv to, to people who live in the more struggling towns in the periphery of Israel. They're all coming together. The society's come to, coming, coming together. There's this incredible sense of solidarity. Reserves turnout. People turning up for reserves is something like 150%, depending on which part of the country, because more people are turning out than they actually need, because the IDF didn't think so many people would turn out. It's, it's what we talk about in our next book. The subtitle of our next book is The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. The book is, this new book out is focused on Israel's resilience. And that's what you're seeing right now in Israeli society. We explain why this country bounces back in the face of horror after horror after horror. October 7th was, was an extreme, extreme version of that horror extreme version of the horror that the Jews have experienced throughout its history, and yet the society is bouncing back. And I think we in the West need to not just focus on the darkness of what's happening in Israel, but understand why this society is so fundamentally strong and solid and unified and what we can learn from this society. Check it out in uh, Dan's new book, The Genius of Israel. Thank you for spending time with us. Good luck with the book. I'm sure a lot of people are going to want to read it, particularly what's going on right now. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 760 WJR.